So tonight I'd like to talk to you about uh, the experience of samadhi in everyday life. And I'm not sure how you all are feeling right now after um, opening the door a little bit into interpersonal connection. How many of you did that exercise and if you feel it uh, stirred you, if you still feel some stirring? So how many felt stirred? <laughs> and uh, and then how many of you in the sit after that could feel the stirring but could feel it settling? Okay. So, <clears throat> um, I was just, I've been reading uh, some on neuroscientists and really very beginner uh, popularized neuroscience. And one of the things that uh, this one person said that really um, stuck with me is that he guessed that um, 95% of our uh, our cognitive mind making decisions and processing information happened unconsciously. And happening unconsciously, it was likely that 95% of it was purely habitual. And that's one of the things that we've inherited is that that's how, that's how a mind works. That's how our brains work. And I'm not totally sold that everything we experience can be deduced down to neural structures. Um, and mom, if you're hearing me say that, <laughs> I'm not dissing your entire worldview. It's just I have an open mind on the topic, just in case this recording ever finds it. But to my... <laughs> So my mom is a neuroscientist as long as my stepfather. And one, I'd be so stunned that she'd actually heard one of my Dharma talks that I, but then to see the ferocity in her mind that I would question whether the sum total of everything that we experience could be uh, deduced down to uh, neurons firing. I'm open to it. <laughs> but I haven't seen the peer-reviewed article yet. <laughs> Now you know what the limits of some of our conversations bump up against. And I poke her, I poke the bear once every family visit, and I know it's the same line every time, but I can see the wave of like, ah, devoted my life to neuroscience. And it's usually followed by, do you believe in past lives? And I don't even go there with her. So. <laughs> I used to be a physicist um, earlier in my life, and there were many complicated things that we had to uh, feel into, and uh, past lives was not one of the more complicated things. <laughs> it's, it's up there with some of the things like black holes, so it, you know, there are a lot of things unknown. But anyhow, uh, <laughs> so when he said that 95% of our activity is habitual and unconscious. The guess on that was that that's sort of how our brains were organized. They were not meant to be conscious of everything fresh all the time. And that means that roughly our, our brains get patterned on how we use them day by day. And then some of those patterns become unconscious subroutines. So you don't have to think about how you tie your shoes anymore. You don't really think about 
how to drive a car after the first couple of years of it, it becomes more second nature. And so a lot of our habits are actually uh, helpful, they're functional, they don't, they're not engaged with suffering, so they can just carry the moment. But some of them are uh, subroutines that we learned at a time when we didn't have wise view. And so we do actually, part of the waking up process is really looking at all of our subroutines, all of our cognitive happenings that are usually happening without us seeing them. And on retreat, we get to see these habits. And then we get to learn which habits are actually entangled with suffering. And because they're entangled with our own wrong view and the process we go through in that habit and the outcome is defined by how we got there, some of our habits actually are unconsciously connected with suffering. And every time we get to see further into our minds and how they work, how they're structured, um, we get to divest of some of those habits and we have to learn new habits to take up the responsibilities that they were taking care of. And so that is really the, 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 the accelerated process that we get to do on retreat. We get to uh, challenge all of our daily habits by just sitting and walking, which is usually not our habit, um, and attending something neutral like the breath. And you can watch your mind try to do its habits. And that's the power of what you're feeling is how deep those habits and subroutines are to wander, to track thoughts, to get excited about possibilities and fearful about negative experiences. So the first couple of days, you're really paying the bill of your habits in daily life and you're challenging them. And that's why the first two days on retreat have a particular type of challenge to them because you're really uh, going, you know, going across the grain of your mind, um, how your mind has been patterned. But in that, um, we become more conscious and in becoming more conscious, we can start to actually pull out of every habit and create a new set of habits, but we just first just keep the mind from going into its worries, its hopes, its ordinary habits, not feeling the body as a habit. So we start to build a habit to actually um, take in direct body sensations. And then there becomes a transformational mid part of our retreat <clears throat> where um, we start to build momentum of new habits. And a new habit is that the breath is actually more important than all the ways your mind could wander. So that wouldn't be a daily life habit, but it becomes a retreat habit. And then you start to see this is actually helpful. This is actually, I'd rather be with my breath than all the problems my mind can create. And so that uh, thing I said earlier, I have 99 problems, but the breath ain't one. That's been true for me for 30 years. I've never actually had a problem with breathing. I've had problems with asthma and that's connected to breathing, but the actual experience of breathing itself is not a problem. So that realm is free of problems. And if I go there, I can actually untangle many of my uh, habitual worries. And then when I re-engage them with perspective, I can see which ones are actually problems I should consider and how many were just my agitated mind. That's the practice of mindfulness, of actually tasting your experience and then evaluating and seeing which ones are connected to suffering, which ones aren't. And then the development of samadhi um, 
takes a little longer because it actually takes underlying habits to support the subjective experience of being concentrated. So vitaka vichara, these are habits, habits of mind, knowing how to aim versus being scattered, knowing how to sustain one's attention. That's actually neural muscles that you could uh, develop and you're developing them in a gym. This is a kind of a mental gym. And so is having interest. That's a mode of mentality, to have an interested mind. You can welcome it, you can practice it. Um, and then that habit is nearby more often, having a delighted, interested mind. So I'm naming some of the jhana factors that you've been working on. And now what you're enjoying on the second half of the retreat is that those are, more, those are habits that you actually have running. Um, you've worked on them. And it actually doesn't take that long to start changing your brain structures. And that's, I don't want to freak you out too much, but that's what you've done. You've, you've changed brain structures by how you've used your brain. It turns out my stepfather uh, is a neuroscientist. And one thing I, I'm just understanding now is that he was one of the pioneers in, in the 70s to learn about neural plasticity, which is all the rage now that this uh, brain is not a hard wiring it's a, it's a, there are underlying structures, but how we use our brain um, strengthens the wires that we use and the wires that we don't use tend to fade and atrophy. So it doesn't take long actually to change our minds. And the human mind is one of the most uh, dynamic, one of the most changeable that's out there. A lot of other animals run on subroutines they can't change. This is a deep, aspect of how this practice works, that we actually can change these habits. And many of us feel plagued by habits that we cannot intervene upon because they are deep, they've been repeated a long time, they're interwoven with other habits we have so we don't know how to change them. So if you've had a very repetitive challenge on this retreat, that's a subroutine. It's a, we call these subroutines sankaras. They're uh, habit forms in, on the mind and we get to wrestle with them on retreat. But by wrestling with them, working with them, breathing through them, not giving energy to the ones that are suffering, giving energy to the ones that are healthy and healing um, and lead to mental well-being, physical well-being, you're actually strengthening those sankaras, you're strengthening those habits and they become more second nature. And then what's nice about when they're second nature is they're running all the time and we like them. So we actually unconsciously weave them through our lives without knowing it. You can do it intentionally, but you also do it unintentionally. Some of the changes that are happening to you um, are hard to track day by day. But if you look over the course of a year or two, you have different habits than you did a year ago and you can be intentional about that. And that's the whole premise of uh, Buddhist practices that our habits are changeable. Nothing is actually hardwired into the universe. Um, it operates on some, some laws, but the habits we experience are all actually changeable. And that's good news that we can change. But you've seen how hard it is to change some of your habits, how deeply entangled they are. So what we've done on this retreat, more, oh, most of the retreats in our Western insight tradition are geared towards developing mindfulness supported by some samadhi, 
but we don't necessarily care how much samadhi is there. We really care that the mind is tracking really closely what's happening moment by moment. And that moment by moment awareness of what your mind is doing so you can see it in its process, that's the heightening of mindfulness. And mindfulness is not as fragile as samadhi. So samadhi actually takes longer to develop because you actually have to quiet some habits of mind for samadhi even to emerge. So you have to quiet some intrinsic restlessness. You have to focus a mind that's used to scanning for novel sensations and following novel information. But you say, here's a repetitive object that's kind of neutral and that's what I'm gonna train on. So it takes a little longer to actually feel samadhi coming, which is why we have a specific retreat on it. So you can get to know it as its own power in the mind, as its own um, jewel of the mind and of the heart. <clears throat> Since samadhi appears in, as the absence of what we call hindrances, we have to be able to quiet our mind to experience samadhi. But you can be mindful that there are hindrances. It's hard because you're hindered. But you can be mindful that you're sleepy. You can be mindful that you're not that focused. So you can be mindful when there's not samadhi. Um, That's one of the great things about mindfulness is that it can bring intimacy into a great range of experiences. But to start welcoming samadhi into your life takes more careful cultivation. And it actually takes... Uh, it depends much more on your lifestyle than mindfulness. Mindfulness depends on your intention. So you intend to be aware moment by moment and track what's happening. But to actually have a samadhi as an active habit of mind and to receive the benefit of living with samadhi, um, it takes a lot more support. So we have a nine day retreat and it's specifically one of our longer retreats. It's nine days rather than six because it takes that much longer to build some momentum with it. The amount of samadhi that you can access on a retreat depends greatly on the, how, what your lifestyle was before the retreat. If your lifestyle is anti-samadhi, <laughs> you can't show up on a retreat and expect it to be um, to be verdant, to be strong, to be robust, because you have all these anti-samadhi habits. If you're scattered, if you're tracking 10,000 things, if you like tracking 10,000 things, if you can't help tra- but track 10,000 things, <laughs> if you live a modern life with all of its speeds and you're texting while you're driving and the driving is getting complicated and then you actually wanna watch a video while you're driving in traffic, <laughs> Um, or you get like a stoplight, you know, you have 12 seconds and it's a long, boring 12 seconds. So that's the time you could do something with that. That's a mind that's hyperactive. And then you live that way and you come to a samadhi retreat and you slam into the fact that, wow, I have these habits that are not open to developing samadhi. I can be mindful of them longer before I can subdue them or relax them into samadhi. So we have a certain lifestyle here and you can see what a retreat lifestyle is. It's not expected that you could live like this. That's why I became a monk um, because I realized that what I wanted could not actually be grown in the lifestyles that I had. But I didn't want to sort of 
good enough samadhi. I really wanted very powerful samadhi, very powerful freedom. And that was a choice I made at the time. And then due to my health, I had to disrobe. So I actually had to come back into a more modern lifestyle and take on the work of valuing samadhi without the support of being on retreat, without the support of being a monastic. But by then I learned to value it so much that um, I couldn't live without it. Once you see how beautiful it is, and once you see how tormenting it is not to have samadhi, it becomes a greater value and it's more worth your time to start having a lifestyle that reflects samadhi. Not just awareness with all of its permutations into complexity and simplicity. You actually want a mind that's more whole. You want to do things with a more whole attention. So that's some of what I wanted to talk about tonight is how we do that in daily life and what that, what that looks like. One of the nice things about having a retreat is that you have enough momentum that for the next week, you'll have these subroutines that you've been working on, the five jhanas, the enjoyment of being whole, uh, the views around the preference of being whole in your attention, liking the outcome of that cultivation. That's all strengthened you, so as you go home, you will have that momentum. And so you get this rare experience of actually being back in an ordinary experience but you'll have heightened mindfulness and you'll have heightened samadhi. And then you get to see how exquisite life can be when there is more mindfulness and more samadhi than you had coming in. It's not so good to be attached to that because you suffer over it, but the Buddha said that, and it depends on how you translate it, but it might be translated into English as the one fortunate attachment is the outcome of dharma because by being attached to it, you'll pursue it. And by being pursuing it, you'll ripen it. And part of the ripening is learning I shouldn't be so attached to it <laughs> because that backfires, but nor should I neglect it. And so you end up having right relationship to it, which is deeply appreciating it, but not attaching to it. And that's how it flourishes. You already had some samadhi before you came in here, um, but you might not have known it. But now you can say, ah, that's samadhi. Because <laughs> you now know samadhi. It's like, ah, that's samadhi. I grew up in Rhode Island, and it almost makes me a, um, an honorary Italian, because there's a really strong, beautiful Italian culture in Providence, Rhode Island. But um, getting to say, that's samadhi, uh, calls back to my roots. But... Mindfulness is like, wow, I really see what's happening, but it's kind of chaotic. But it's like, I really see what's happening, and there's actually a smooth flow to my mind. There's a wholeness to my attention. Ah, that's samadhi. That's helpful to appreciate it. So you had some samadhi before you came here, and that was the basis from which you did this retreat. And you'll go back into ordinary life and about a month after retreat, your mind will look like how you used it. There's no way to hold on to these effects without the practices behind them. So your mind will change and look more like whatever you're able to integrate into daily life. And that's just how it works. And it's good to know that. It's not your fault. Your mind will look like how you used it. It will look like your lifestyle. 
And I know some people have some anxiety about that, but it's not helpful to have anxiety about that because that's a habit. <laughs> and so you're actually increasing worry when you worry about losing your samadhi. But if you appreciate it, and you know, I was barely functional before the retreat, and you'll probably have at least that much function when you go back. <laughs> but you could improve upon it. And so that's the benefit of coming on a retreat. You can't keep retreat-like conditions, but you can integrate. And about, uh, you'll have a week afterwards where you'll have heightened samadhi. You'll track its decay, and it will decay. It's conditional, and it looks like, if your life doesn't look like that, you can't have samadhi without the lifestyle. And so learning about its decay is learning, is a wisdom perspective that it will samadhi will look like how you've used your mind and it, it will look like your lifestyle. So then your lifestyle ends up being important and how you prioritize what you do with a day. You have many more choices than you realize. A lot of us feel caught up in the stream of life and we feel like we barely keep our nose above water. But with a little more attention, there's a lot more choice than you realize that you can choose non-agitating activity more often and you can get the reward of focused, settled activity more often. So you can multi, the worst thing to do with your samadhi is multitask. But our, our lifestyle is like, if I can't multitask, I can't live. But you actually can do one thing at a time with your whole attention. And that's a new skill. That's something to preserve. That's something to practice. Do one thing at a time with your full attention. You tend to do it well. And you tend not to have to go back and do it better a second time. So giving something your full attention, then give the next thing your full attention, then give the next thing your full attention. You'll see for many days after the retreat that you're able to do that. You're able to make a cup of tea. And while you were making a cup of tea, your mind had the option of wandering. You had the option of, of multitasking while you're making a cup of tea. Or you could just enjoy making a cup of tea. That's samadhi. That's samadhi making a cup of tea. It's not retreat absorption, but it is whole attention in the activity that's happening. So you can just keep it simple, like am I in samadhi making this cup of tea? Or if you really want to know this practice, you take up the, the delight in the five jhana factors and you make a cup of tea with your jive, five jhana factors or your five jivey factors, <laughs> your five jhana factors. So I'm making a cup of tea. Was I focused on it? Did I sustain my attention? Or was it like, ah, a cup of tea. There's vitaka, but very little vichara. Now I'm making a cup of tea and I'm actually staying present through this whole process. I'm enjoying it. I'm taking interest in it. I'm taking interest in the process of it. I'm taking interest in the flavor of drinking it. I'm giving it my whole attention. It's amazing for the first couple of days after a samadhi retreat, you'll actually have much more whole attention compared to daily living. You may not think you have much attention now, but you, won't, you don't realize how deep the tide is. We've been here for many days, and you get to experience that after retreat. And I guess to show you how efficient you can be when there's a lot of samadhi when you can actually do one thing at a time with your whole attention and how satisfying that activity is so you don't do something and then need some type of good experience 
to pay off for how hard that one experience was. If you do one thing with your whole attention, it's interesting. There's a type of uh, enjoyment, sukha, in doing that one thing. Focusing your mind is better than having it scattered. Sustaining it is rather is better than having it hopping around. And this underlying wholeness is its own source of joy. So rather than needing joy through 10,000 strategies that you sip through a coffee straw and get these little hits from, and then you need a lot more little hits of happiness, you actually have endogenous happiness coming up from within because of the wholeness of your heart. Now that's a beautiful thing. If the whole heart didn't actually taste good, it would always be work to create it. But the wholeness of heart actually gives off the experience of well-being. Once you see that, you don't really want to cheapen your life by going after 10,000 things. 10,000 things are not interesting because it starts to fragment and the cost of the fragmentation is not worth the cheap highs of 10,000 things. So what you engage in tends to align much more with your values and your intentions. And you tend not to be as drawn into scattering things And then when you are drawn into scattering things, you can see how unrewarding they are compared to samadhi. But since you didn't know samadhi before, all you had was 10,000 things to chase. Your joys were in these little hits. So that's as good as it got. You have to kind of like get pleasure at your tongue, pleasure at your ears, pleasure at your nose. It's all transient. So you have to keep chasing these transient things to these sense doors. But when your heart ends up being whole, there's such a deep, well-being in that, it doesn't matter what you do. You could do several things, you could do one thing, but it's like, wow, there actually this uh, joy follows me around. The Buddha said it's like um, a weightless shadow that always follows you. There's no burden in the shadow. It just follows you. This joy, this well-being comes with you because the heart is whole. And that is an important thing to discover. And it's also at the crux of waking up, it's at the crux of Buddhist spirituality, it's at the crux of many spiritualities, is to know the wholeness of your heart and to know a well-being that comes up from within. When you have well-being coming up from within, then when you relate to the world, it's not burdened by looking for your well-being in these exhausting, transient hits. You engage the world, I'm already well, what do I wanna do with my day? I want to help other people be well. I want to enjoy this wellness. So I'm going to enjoy the wellness and here's where I can help. No one I see needs help, so I'm just going to enjoy the wellness. You're not pulling on all these experiences looking for a little wellness because you're haggard, you're tired, you're scattered, and it's not quite doing it, but it's all you know. Before you know samadhi, All you know is transient hits and they're very insecure. And then the struggle over how do you wrestle with all this transient complexity to try to get little hits of happiness, you actually start to have a trustworthy happiness and it's from the wholeness of your heart. So you'll get to explore this. It's one of the, again, a beautiful thing about the retreat is the retreat, but there's a second beautiful thing, which is the momentum after a retreat. And it's, there's just as much to learn. What you learn on retreat is useful on retreat, but it's not automatically obvious how it's useful after retreat. 
But what you learn after retreat is usually back in your ordinary life, but you have heightened mindfulness. You have heightened intimacy with life. You have heightened wholeness of heart more than you realize. And if you've had a purifying retreat, you might think, God damn it, another talk that has nothing to do with me because I don't know anything about samadhi. All I know is the torments. But uh, I can almost promise you, as much as I could promise anything, is that purifying retreats, the reward comes in the purification afterwards. Um, So I would love to be there and, and point out your own uh, benefit from the hard work you put in, but this is also about you. And it's the outcome of our practice. In the Eightfold Path, if you study uh, Dharma structures and Dharma teachings, there's a teaching called the Eightfold Path. And it's eight things that we're supposed to keep track of, eight things we're supposed to uh, develop in order to be free. And one of them is samadhi. And so if samadhi only belongs on retreat, that means daily living has only eight folds that are possible and you only can taste samadhi under very rarefied circumstances, on retreat or in a quiet cabin in the woods. So that would, that would be very unfortunate if one of the factors was only accessible in very rare circumstances. So we are meant to practice samadhi in daily life as much as we're meant to practice right speech. It's as, it's as much as what we're supposed to be cultivating. So wholeness of attention in daily life. So <clears throat> one practical thing is to take activities that you do every day and make them practices so the nice thing about it is you know you're going to wash dishes every day. You know you're going to shower. You know you're going to brush your teeth. You know how you get from your house to where you usually go. Is it by walking, by bus, by car? Uh, how do you go from A to B? So you start claiming those. Not as times to worry. Not as times to be chaotically stimulated. Not as times to anticipate and remember and fragment your mind. But make those activities of samadhi. It won't be like looking uh, at a turkey with your eyes and having everything go quiet and there's no sense of self and all time evaporates. It won't be that. It won't be retreat samadhi, but it doesn't make it less valuable. And what that will do down the road is that you came into this retreat with this much samadhi and from that you had certain peak experiences, but they're built up from the floor of your daily life. If your daily life raises, then the, the peak experiences uh, also get higher. You don't want to cling to them or chase them, and I know the way I'm framing it really sets you up to do that. But it's part of how it works, that when your lifestyle has more samadhi in it, when you come to these rarefied conditions, you're not overcoming such bad habits, then trying to collect your mind, your lifestyle looks like um, already pretty gathered. So taking ordinary parts of the day where you could just be in unconscious subroutines and make them relaxed conscious practice. So I attempt to drive this way, I'm very unsuccessful. In that I find traffic, my Achilles heel. There's something about uh, crowded competitive traffic 
that I have to do a lot of reminders not to get swept up into that mind state and feel the agitation of the traffic and feel my mind looking like traffic. I like talk myself down out of it. I have a little rock I've painted slower and kinder on it. I keep it right in my dash because I actually need a lot of reminders when I'm driving to make it a conscious practice rather than let my unconscious habits win out. In looking at your lifestyle, lifestyle is actually one of the eightfolds, the eightfold path. It's called livelihood and it's most reduced form is what is, how do you, how do you make your money? But that's probably the least interesting summation of that fold of the eightfold path. So there's samadhi is one of them, but so is right livelihood. And right livelihood hopefully is engaging your heart, your values, that's a beautiful part about livelihood. But also is right livelihood growing the jewels of samadhi? And if it's not, you might really need to consider that livelihood. If you want the well-being of samadhi, but your job fragments and revs and trashes your mind, it's really counterproductive. So you might need to think about that. And if you can't change a bad job, you want to come at it in a way that supports your heart as best as possible. So I was working in a homeless shelter once um, for teenagers, and it was not conducive to samadhi. The phone would ring, kids would be arguing, I'd attract the level of tension in their arguing, see if it was fun, when it was gonna cross over into an argument. Someone could ring the door at any point, it would be a tense meeting because it would be a homeless kid coming into the shelter, which never feels good for that kid. Usually they've been homeless for a while or they've just left the home. They're often with a police person who's been having to navigate that. They're stressed a little bit. It's just a, it's an intense zone what I liked about it as a lifestyle is that it called other parts of my heart forward, the caring, the service, the devotion. That was beautiful, but it agitated my mind until I said, I'm gonna come at this work and treat it like these are opportunities to practice samadhi. So skipping metaphors for a second from homeless teen shelter to going to work with uh, weights in a gym. I don't do a lot of gym work, but the imagery works. You can start with uh, light weights and feel very proud of yourself. Then move on to the heavier weights and feel the challenge. And then you take on other weights and you feel the strain, but you can still do them. If you take on weights, you can't move, but you're still working them. You're still working your muscles. You just don't see the outcome until your muscles get strong enough to lift up those weights. So what's important is to use the intentions to uh, steady your mind. It's not so important about the results. So in a homeless shelter with all this stimulation, the fact that I was trying to practice samadhi, I was engaging my intention. I was engaging the values and that actually made my mind stronger. I just didn't feel a lot of the results of actually having a relaxed whole attention. It was not the environment to have a lot of that. But I had a lot more of it than I realized I could, a lot more of it than I would have guessed. And my mind went when there were conditions where I wasn't overstimulated, I was like, this is the perfect time to feel my breath. I'm here in the shelter, There's, the kids are at school, I've done all the work, and I actually have some downtime. I'm just gonna feel my breath during this time. I was like, wow. Who knew I could actually find my breath in a homeless shelter for teenagers? 
but I am. And then kids would come and things would speed up a little bit. And I was like, I'm trying to be holding my attention. I can't. So let me go to these five jhana factors. What is vitaka in a teen shelter? It's tracking the information you need to track intentionally. Don't let your mind go to 10,000 places. What is the priority of the moment? And get your attention on it. Sustain your attention on what you need to in a homeless shelter. What do you need to sustain your attention on? If you don't find being in a homeless shelter interesting, it's gonna feel like drudgery. It's gonna burn you out. So why are you interested in being here? Get back in touch with your intention that lightens your heart. I really want to be of service. Can you find happiness, a type of sukha, in being in a homeless shelter? That takes a lot of compassion and wisdom. But without the compassion and wisdom to support sukha in being in a homeless teen shelter, you're going to burn out. So then I learned it's the view I have, it's the compassion I have that actually brings about sukha. And with that, I have a more whole heart in this homeless teen shelter. To anybody who hasn't been on a retreat, this is so Dharma nerdy that I'll be like, oh my God, you're such a Dharma geek. You're trying to do five jhana factors while working in a homeless shelter. It's like, yeah, I'm trying to stay sane. And you don't understand that this is sanity versus insanity. And I have learned tools of sanity. And you don't know these tools yet, but I do. I want to aim and sustain my attention in all circumstances, whether they are easy or challenging. Because if I lose them, it's not better. So if I lose these jhana factors, I suffer. So the, the samadhi is, is a beautiful experience. And to have samadhi, you either want to work on the jhana factors or supporting factors like mindfulness. When Amana talked, the way into her samadhi was through mindfulness. And through that, her heart became more whole. So mindfulness is not a jhana factor but it's very helpful to know that you're caught up in too many things and the way out is not to get further caught up. You actually have to back out of too many things. I need to get whole again. So you're either practicing these jhana factors or you're practicing mindfulness or wisdom, other things that support samadhi. So if I could do it in a homeless shelter as I young 24 year old with all my crazy mind, uh, you can do it in your life. I mean, some of you might actually have a harder situation, but that's even more important to learn how to practice wholeness of attention in those circumstances. It's on you to do that and you can do it. If it weren't possible, it would be a uh, It'd be torturous to even suggest that you try it, but it is doable. Our mind changes every day and it changes by how we use it. And we have to take responsibility for that. We have to own the, our own patterns and we have to divest of the ones that are really unskillful. And we have to invest in the ones that are skillful for our own well-being. But then it turns out it ends up being how we serve the world. When happiness comes from your own wholeness, you are not as dependent on extracting things you don't have from other people, from other experiences. So you can enjoy them, you can let them be as they are. 
chocolate just gets to be chocolate. It's not the thing that saves you from your own despair. It's just chocolate, which is what chocolate should be. So you liberate chocolate. Then you get to know chocolate for what it is. You get to know pizza for what it is. It only is what it is. It can't be more than that. But if you don't have samadhi, you need pizza. Or you need numbing TV shows because that's how you get into sukkah. And that's how you know how to get to sukkah is through uh, going blase with a lot of TV consumption. You're actually trying to get into well-being, but the strategies only go so far. Once you actually find samadhi, it liberates you in all your relationship to all your other strategies, and they become options for your own joy, for sharing joy with other people, for being of service. That grows out of a heart that knows how to find samadhi in daily life. I had another image that works for me, and it may not work for you, but you have to be subjected to it because I'm giving the talk. <laughs> if you look at the, the comics on a Sunday newspaper, if you look at them under a microscope, they're made of three colored dots. All that color is just how much blue is there, how much red is there, and how much yellow is there. And sometimes it's green versus yellow. But it's these three dots, and they're so close together that you're your mind from a certain perspective sees them as one color, but it's made up of three primary colors. That's how the inkjet works. When you come on retreat, you can actually play on such a level that you're playing with the samadhi right in one dot at a time. And that means your overall mind is being affected because you're working on this microscopic level. When you go out to ordinary life, you can't work on that level. You can't look at a dot of your mind and try to balance it out, but you can look at the big picture and say it's dominated by too much yellow. So big picture mind, you don't have to get microscopic to have there to be samadhi in daily life. You look at it from the perspective of how you're living. That's actually doable. It seems undoable from retreat to take this level of attention into daily life, but you don't have to. You just look at bigger sections of your life that you can reach in daily life. That's actually doable. So then you're practicing jhana factors in a surprise wedding reception. And that's how you go from something that feels slightly oppressive, but you're going to dutifully do it, to where I'm actually going to use this to practice my jhana factors. And as I did, that wedding reception became enjoyable. Why did it become enjoyable? Because my heart became whole. Because it became whole, I wasn't trying to navigate my happiness by how I was engaging with a person. I was already happy, which meant as I engaged people, they were free of being part of my happiness strategy, which means that they could actually meet somebody who was already happy, which is nice. It's nice to meet somebody who's already happy versus instantly being drawn into their happiness strategy. You don't want to be tangled up in other people's happiness strategy. Who knows what they're thinking? Who knows how they get happy? So I walk into a, <laughs> I walk into certain cafes, and they know me as a happy one, and I'm already happy. So they don't. If, if they're having a bad day, they're not part of my happiness strategy. They're part of what I do with my happiness. But the people in, the, in this cafe I go to, they like it when I walk in because I'm already a happy person. But so many people, they have to navigate 
this person's happiness strategy was very tied into how they get served, the speed at which they get served, the speed at which they get their coffee, whether coffee was hot enough, strong enough, dark enough, whether it was enough cream, whether they had equal versus Splenda. I'm an equal guy. I'm not a Splenda guy. You don't have equal. Now what's my sweetness strategy around my coffee? And you had equal yesterday. You don't have it today. And now I have to pick a different cafe. So one time I was doing this. One time I was doing this in a cafe where they had the best chocolate chip cookie. That's one of the reasons I like to go there. So part of my happiness strategy was dependent upon this cookie because I only had so much happiness inside. They changed their brand of cookie. And so I sat there for a long time, like, do I talk to them about this? But then I'm one of those customers that's like, hi, I need to talk to you about your cookie. I know you're really busy, but could you take care of the fact that I don't have the right combination of fat, butter, salt, sugar, and chocolate? Like, you got it, but not the way I quite like it. So I'm dragging them through my happiness strategy. And a lot of us are doing that. We're dragging each other and the world through our happiness strategies, and we don't end up all that happy. If you actually have a lifestyle that allows for more samadhi, the happiness is in the heart. It bubbles up from within. And Nikki gave the talk about uh, the jhanas last night. You can think about jhanas as certain depths of concentration, but they also, the way I think of them, I think about qualities of presence. And the third jhana is a submersion in well-being. And what's so important about that submersion is you realize all the happiness you've ever looked through, looked for through tons of strategies that was never secure actually rises up when this factor of uh, sukha arises. It's the happiness you're trying to have arise through transient experiences, which makes the sukha really dependent and transient as is the experience. But when the heart has the habit of being in sukha, of knowing sukha, of actually watching sukha degrade and saying, I don't want it to degrade, this is actually worth it. What would actually help this factor be more accessible? Then you cultivate sukha within and it liberates yourself from all these unworkable strategies that don't secure happiness and you liberate people in your life from being entangled in your happiness strategy, which means you get to just enjoy them. And if they're in a bad mood, that doesn't threaten your happiness strategy. You have happiness inside, someone's in a bad mood, you can attend to them. Or you can say they look like they want some alone time. Or someone's in a good mood. If they're, they're freed up because they're not entangled in how you're looking for happiness because happiness is already bubbling up from within you. It's such an important discovery. You might find it on a mindfulness retreat, but it's actually much more about samadhi. It's much more about the wholeness of your heart. And when you start to taste that, you've got a better intrinsic understanding about well-being and where it really comes from than through conventional strategies. And so that's a big turning in your life. And then it's worth making samadhi a primary activity of your day so that your heart reflects that.
And if you have to make lifestyle changes, you make them, the ones that are doable. Start with the ones that are easy. Challenge yourself with the mid-grade ones and then think about how do I do the big ones? How do I do big changes in the life so that my heart actually has more samadhi in it? Sometimes I like to go to San Francisco and get very stimulated because I am not accessing PT in my lifestyle. So that is a happiness and samadhi uplift if the way I'm going about my East Bay life is too kind of East Bay, well, that's okay. But sometimes I want some little San Francisco, woof. So I lift on that and it's fun. And it's like, ah, there it is, that PT again, I like it. So my lifestyle allows me to have PT. When I lived in San Francisco, there was too much PT. Just finding parking was so much PT, <laughs> so much stimulation that I had no sukha. And so living in San Francisco at one point in my life was a great part of my well-being and it helped my heart be whole. 10 years later, it was aggravating. And so I moved to the East Bay. If you know the Bay Area, that might tell you something about choosing lifestyle and that actually being an important component to whether there's intrinsic well-being. And I'm using lifestyle to actually be supportive to the cultivation of uh, samadhi. Now I like living behind the Berkeley Oakland Hills for the quiet, but I like coming over to the East Bay. And this is how I do my five jhana cultivation. I like coming over and getting a little more cultural stimulation because it's a little, little quiet back there, but I don't want to be that stimulated. So this is, and I'm, I, I know this is Dharma geeky, but it's some of how I think of like, I'm, I'm too agitated. My lifestyle needs to come down. I need to have much more rest in my life. Otherwise I won't have happiness inside. I'll be agitated. Or my life has gotten so sedentary, I'm losing interest. I've gotten quiet, which is great. After a while, it begins to dull out. I need to cultivate PT. Then when it's up and running, it tends to reinforce itself. But if I lose my way, I intentionally cultivate it. And I know this because I worked with Pauk Saida in Burma for months. He taught me about the jhana factors. And then when I said, what's next? He said, the jhana factors. And I said, okay, I've been working on them. What's next? And he said, the jhana factors is next. And I was like, wow. And you read this book and you like read page one through 30 and 131, it says, once the jhana factors are well deepened in you, you move on. It's like, wow, that actually takes some time. It's an actual practice and it's a bottomless practice. You can keep developing these jhana factors, keep developing access to samadhi. And just as a side note, um, after all of the Buddha's students were awakened, the ones that we know of, they kept practicing. They're already free, so why would they keep practicing? No one said, but my guess is that it's just fascinating because they haven't reached the upper limit. So they keep practicing, one, to hold their mind together in case they were getting worn out. But two, you have to see even more of how exquisite the mind is, how exquisite your own heart is when it's whole. And any degree that it's less than that, you can taste the, the lessness 
of your heart that's not quite as whole, that's not quite as bright, that's not quite as satisfied. And rather than clinging to it, you appreciate it. And by appreciating, it comes forward as a value. Rather than it being something you did dutifully because a teacher told you to or you're trying to do things right, it's like, no, actually, I want this. And it's worth it to me to sacrifice some strategies and some ways I was hanging out with people or ways I was going through my week actually need to have more collectedness. And if your lifestyle doesn't give you that enough, you need a daily, uh, a weekly retreat. You might need a class does it for you. You might need a day long. You might need to come back and really refresh in it. If your uh, current lifestyle doesn't let you touch into that enough or sustain it enough, but don't go without. It really, uh, it's madness to go without samadhi. You, I haven't seen anybody without any samadhi. Again, you all had some coming in. Everybody has some. But when you see what more samadhi can offer you, it becomes one of the deeply rewarding parts of making headway on your path, is feeling that intrinsic well-being. So you could just look at wholeness of attention. And if you want, you can look at these jhana factors, see how your work how you get from point A to B with the jhana factors, how you make a cup of tea with your jhana factors. If that's too many factors and that splits your attention, that's not helpful for samadhi. So you simplify and just look, how whole is my attention? And am I giving it to what I'm doing in the present? One nice thing about the Eightfold Path is that they're all interrelated. So anytime you develop one part you end up developing all the other seven. So by developing mindfulness, you end up developing samadhi. Those are two folds. By developing mindfulness samadhi, it'll affect your lifestyle. By affecting your lifestyle, you affect your mindfulness and samadhi. Maybe the last thing I'll say, and this is, again, something helpful on the eve of the end of a retreat. And the way the mind bubbles up in anticipation of what's to come. In some ways, it really doesn't help to be fearful what's about to happen, because you just can't guess it. The very last thing that will happen is what you're planning tonight. So you can really just recycle every plan you make tonight as probably the, worst, the, the, the least worthful thing your mind has ever done is actually try to strategize tonight of what you're going to do as you go home. Um, it just, it, and it's fun to watch how bad the mind actually is at that, but how it keeps trying. But you can have the spirit of going forward with excitement. There's a great adventure ahead of you. You've been on this retreat, so your superpowers are stronger than they've ever been. And you get to actually go forward into not a little retreat center, but into this globe with all of its possibilities, with a heart that knows how to be more whole. You've learned something very valuable. So now you can go forward 
not with specific expectations, but with a spirit of, I want this adventure. I want to learn. I'm going to learn from each day. And that's an important thing to recover in the morning. And as I've suggested sometimes on the retreat, is to learn from the day and have that influence your intention for the next day. Not your expectation, because that's too narrow, but your intention for the next day. Now, knowing what I know now, I want to go through my day with a more simple stream of mind, and I'm going to support that. Because if I don't go with that intention, my mind will bifurcate. It's like, yeah, it's easy to be whole in my attention. That was true on Tuesday. But then I learned Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, that was not easy. So I'm actually going to recover that intention every morning. This is the day where wholeness of my attention, doing one thing well at a time, is so worth it for how that impacts my heart. And if I lose that intention, I fragment my heart and I experience the restlessness, the confusion, all of that chaos comes back in. So it's very important to guard the intention. And again, it's not about the outcome, it's about the intention. Samadhi is won by uh, steadying the intention and relaxing about the outcome. And that's what grows the heart that's whole. So recover that intention each morning and to make sure you can actually find it each morning, it can be helpful as you're going to bed, say the first thing I wanna think of in the morning is to recover my values from when I wake up from sleep. And if you don't do that, the mind while it's half asleep will start to pick up your worries and wonder what time it is and do you have enough time to eat breakfast before you go off to work? And then that mindset has already defined your day. But if you say, no, right when I'm waking up in the morning, I'm going to intend to feel my body and feel how well I've slept and breathe a little bit and make sure I have a morning practice so that when I sit in the morning, sometime during that sit, I recover my intentions, I recover my clarity. I know I'm starting my day from a rough place. I didn't sleep well, but at least I now know my body's tired versus not knowing that and having that unconsciously define your day. So having a morning sit, but also a recollection of what you value each day and living from that. We do have our work ahead of us because our dominant culture is ramping up in speed and fragmentation. So I'm not gonna lie to you. Uh, and you already know this if you've been alive. <laughs> Just in case you happen to have been alive before this retreat, it is speeding up. And they're building advertising and phones and a lot of things to be addictive. They're building things to grab your attention. They're building things not to support the wholeness of your heart, but to grab fragments of your attention. So our dominant culture, we are swimming upstream against that. So another great resource is to be connected somehow through a sense that you're not alone in this feeling of actual community, staying uh, with Dharma talks that inspire you or practices or a sense of community, just so you're not fighting this alone. Because uh, a lot of forces around you do lead to unconsciousness. They promise you happiness, but if you actually taste the strategy, it's agitating 
and it really doesn't deliver. And you'll think you didn't do it right. Because look at those white teeth and that smile. I should buy that car. I mean, it's, it's coming at you all day long, these false strategies. So all the Dharma is many practices, like taking right refuge. What are you taking refuge in? Your false strategies or good strategies. Take refuge in good strategies. Your breath is now a very good ally for feeling whole and not being drawn and having a place to return to. And you've worked hard to create that refuge and now see what it's like to trust a good friend, your breath, out in more complex circumstances. And you get to see what that's like. So that's enough for tonight. Thank you for your attention. And without changing your posture at all, because it's already good enough Let's just sit for a moment. I, I saw you changing your posture. <laughs> You're already where you need to be and just keep it simple. Please enjoy this last night and enjoy the last sitting and enjoy your rest when it comes tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.